Bible and turn to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. It's around page 61 on that pew Bible in front of you if you need one. Exodus chapter 20. I want to thank all of you who have, who have been praying for me. Uh, for my time of illness, um, it, uh, it was an illness, that's about all I can say. So uh, I was ill, and I'm at about 90% now, so if you're like, well, he seems a little off, well, okay, so I think that as well. All right, uh, but Exodus chapter 20, I also want to say thank you to John uh, Tierney, who stepped in last week. Um, with only a bit of notice because I was not getting better, and so I'm thankful that he stepped in and preached uh, last week. Exodus chapter 20, what I want to do is read verses 1 to 17, and then we will pray, and then we'll launch in. This is what the Spirit says. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall do no work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Let's pray together. Our Father, we recognize that these are words that you have spoken and you intend us to understand them, to hear them, to believe them to love them, to live according to them. And so we ask for your Spirit's help, for apart from the help of your Spirit, we won't do any of these things. God, we pray that we would not turn a blind eye to what you have said here, but we would open our hearts to it. Speak, Lord, for your people are listening. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today we continue our walk through the Ten Commandments. As you may recall, Israel has been rescued from slavery, brought out of Egypt to be God's people. 
no longer under the thumb of Pharaoh, but under the care of God. And through these commandments, God is telling His people, this is what it means to live as my people. Now, the Ten Commandments are laid out in two parts, what are often called two tables. The first table is the first four commandments, and they are primarily vertical. They deal with our relationship with God, our commitment to God, our devotion to God, our reverence for God. And the last six are the second table. They are primarily horizontal. They deal with our relationship with other people. Jesus summed these two tables up this way. He was asked, what is the greatest commandment? And in Matthew 22, Jesus answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So love God with all that you are and love others as you do yourself. According to Jesus, that's the message of the Ten Commandments. That's the message of the law. But, but you see, in our ears, when we hear the word commandment, we don't automatically think love, do we? We most often think of love as something we choose to do, but commandments as something we have to do. Yet the Bible brings these two things together. I mean, just think about it. Am I really loving God with all that I am if I drag His name through the mud, if I don't take Him seriously, if I don't worship Him exclusively? Well, no. Do I actually love others if I steal from them, if I kill them, if I slander them? No, I don't at all. So, you see, love is expressed in keeping God's commandments. Jesus could say it no plainer than He did in John 14. He said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And really, that's the question that lies behind each one of these. Not just do you obey this, but do you love do you actually love God? Do you actually love others? And that's the question that lies behind the second commandment. We come to that one today. I won't read it in its fullness again, but it's verses 4 to 6. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water beneath the earth. So here in this commandment, the thing that we have is the command first to worship God properly. Worship God properly. Okay, this is another angle on the whole notion of idolatry, which was introduced by the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. You see, the, the emphasis of the first commandment is that we are not to worship the wrong gods. The emphasis of the second commandment is we are not to worship the right God wrongly. We are not to seek to make an image of the one true and living God. No 
carved images, no carved images of wood, no carved images of stone, nothing golden or silver. No, don't use your imagination to create some kind of representation of God. Well, you see, that was actually quite commonplace in that day and in that place. In the ancient Near East, every nation had its gods. And every nation has its, had its statues, its idols, its representations of those gods. And, and some of them were in the things that were in heaven above. And some of them were things that roam on the earth, and some of them in the water. And so you had it, both animals and people were, became representation of gods in various cultures. Uh, the people were kind of these superhumans, but still with weaknesses and faults. But God is saying, don't follow in the footsteps of all the other nations. Be set apart. Be holy. You see, worship in Israel is meant to be different because this God is unique. There's none like Him. So don't attempt to make an image of God for worship. Don't make images that you're going to bow down to and say that you're worshiping God. Don't serve images and say you're serving God. Now, the fact that this is what this command is pointing to becomes clearer when Moses recounts it later. In Deuteronomy 4, Moses recounts, Since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire, beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves. You see the logic there? Since there was no form when you were at the mountain, don't make a form. In fact, that, that word form in Deuteronomy is the same word as likeness here in verse 4. God didn't come with a likeness, so don't go making one. One commentator basically summed this up by saying that through this command, God is making it clear that He will not be captured, assigned, or managed by anyone or anything for any purpose. Now, to be clear, God is not actually opposed to imagination or artistry. In fact, later on in Exodus, he is going to empower men by His Spirit to be creative in the building of the tabernacle. And God's not actually opposed to visual, visual reminders or visual aids in teaching. I mean, when they build the tabernacle, they're going to put a curtain between the holy place and the most holy place. You know what's woven into that curtain? An image, an image of cherubim. Do you know why it's there? It's to be a reminder of the cherubim that God stationed outside the Garden of Eden, blocking off and guarding the way back to Him. It was to teach them and continually that the way back to God has been cut off, and the only way in is through atonement. That's the only way back. Or take later when the people of Israel crossed the Jordan River in Joshua chapter 4. That can be your homework for this afternoon. Just go and read it. As they're going across on dry ground, you know what God has them do? Pick up 12 stones, not just from anywhere, from the riverbed, and take them to the other side and set them up. And they are to remind them of the great power of God in bringing them across. Not only that, but when they're, walking out, when they're out walking with their kids next to the Jordan River and they say, now what did, 
Why is this pile of stones here? Because stones don't just pile up like this. They can say, well, let me tell you a story, a story about God and how he powerfully brought his people into the land that we have. And if that's not good enough, we still have visuals today, don't we? We have communion. We have baptism. These are the visible expressions that God has given us to proclaim the gospel over and over and over and over again. And so it's not about all things visual. It's really about representations of God. For human beings to make an image of God is an act of corruption. Well, why? Well, when images of God are made, there are a few things I just want you to think about, okay? When, when images of God are made, the first thing just to think about is the fact that human, human imagination has overstepped its place. Imagination is a wonderful gift, but it is out of bounds and it is sinful for human imagination to have free reign to create an image of God. You see, Israel's concept of God is meant to come from God's revelation of Himself, not from their imagination. They're not supposed to sit around and say, you know, I visualize God as, you know, they walk into the local craftsman shop and says, here's how I visualize God. Can you make that for me? They're not at liberty to do that. They're not at liberty to come up with, with what God is like. Now, some will say, well, we can visualize God. We just shouldn't carve any images. Now, friend, be very, very careful. Because to visualize God and say, that's okay, it's just the carving of the images. I mean, we can paint. We can draw, we just can't carve any images. Not only is that a bad way to interpret the Bible in general, but it's not the way Jesus interprets the law. You remember what he does in the Sermon on the Mount? Jesus says, well, actually, the law is not just about the external. The law is not just about what you can see. The law is actually about your heart. So... Murder is not just about murder. Murder is actually about hate. Adultery is not just about the act of adultery. Adultery is about lust. And when you follow Jesus' logic, carving images is not just about carving images. It is about the human imagination determining what God is like and what God looks like. And that is not in our realm of authority. But this kind of thing, you may think, well, this is just way back then, right? Nobody does this anymore. Well, let me just ask you. You think anybody might say something like this? Well, I visualize God as a benevolent grandfather. You know, he, he loves me, he tossles my hair, gives me what I want, and stays out of my business. 
Or I just like to see God as all smiles, all smiles and warmth. No, no anger, no wrath, no judgment. There's actually a book on the market today that I don't recommend at all. But the, the author is seeking to oppose the notion of imaging God as a white male. And the name of the book is God is a Black Woman. The reality is imagining God either way is wrong. It's outlawed by this commandment. We are not to take up things that we can touch and hold and say, well, this is, this is God here. You see, the crux of the issue is, is that when we say, I visualize God as, or I like to think of God as, what we've done is we've taken out the words, thus says the Lord, and we've put in, I like to visualize God as. And all of a sudden, the authority is in our hands, and that is corruption. The second thing is that when images of God are made, God's character is diminished. There is no likeness. There is no form. There is no statue that can capture God, the God that is revealed to us in the Bible. At the very best, they are misleading, but each one of them must, by default, make him smaller than he actually is. So just consider, God is omnipresent. God is eternal. God is spirit. The moment the chisel hits the stone, God's character is diminished. What you have then is less than God, a smaller God, maybe a God you can wrap your mind around. I mean, isn't that what most people want? We just, I just want a God that I can figure out. I just want a God I can wrap my mind around. I just want a God that will never leave me puzzled. I just want a God that I never have to ask, well, why did you do that? God's character is diminished. But this God is actually beyond our full comprehension. It's part of why He's worthy of our worship and worthy of our praise because we can't comprehend Him. You see, to make an image of God is by default to make another God altogether. And that's why it's part of idolatry. Thirdly, consider when images of God are made, human beings seek to control God. You see, in the ancient Near East, there was a kind of mystical belief that if you had a God's image, if you had that statue, then that God was yours. They were under your jurisdiction. This is why when they would win battles, they would take the gods of the nations they defeat and put them in subservient position to their gods in their temple because these are ours now. We have dominion over them now. You see, the idea of something that I can hold and see and carry around with me in my, in my wallet or my purse or my backpack or on a cart or in my car, that, that this gives me the idea that I have some kind of control. And, and don't actually people think this way still today? Well, you know, if I hang this crucifix on my wall or in my car or around my neck, then I'll be protected. 
Do you know what that is? That is to take an image of God and control it so that God is subservient to me. Wherever I take this image, I guarantee God's protection. He is obligated to do X, Y, or Z. Friends, these aren't, these aren't ancient things. These are things that we deal with even today. And it's a corruption of biblical Christianity. And God says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image. Worship God properly. And before we move on, just to say that's all of that is on the negative side. There is no positive, here's how you worship. But when you get to the New Testament, just so that you can keep this in mind, Jesus speaks to this, doesn't He? In John chapter 4, as He's speaking to the woman at the well, He says, God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. In spirit and in truth. Now, in speaking about what it means to worship in spirit, William Barclay wrote this, true and genuine worship is not to come to a certain place. It is not to go through a ritual or liturgy. It is not even to bring certain gifts, though certainly those can be acts of worship, can they not? Those can be part of worship. We can facilitate worship in that way. But it's not just the physical going and the doing and the bringing and the whatnot that makes worship. He goes on, he says, true worship is when the Spirit... The immortal and invisible part of man speaks to and meets with God, who is immortal and invisible. And then to worship in truth, in truth has a couple of connotations. To worship the word in Greek is actually quite flexible. It can just mean sincerely, wholeheartedly. Like we're not double-minded when we come in. I'm not, I'm not worshiping in order to be seen. I'm not worshiping to gain, to gain credit for myself. I'm actually worshiping because God is worthy of worship wholeheartedly. But also, we worship in truth when we worship according to God's Word, according to God's truth. We don't just say that worship is a free-for-all and we can just do whatever it is that we want and call it worship. You see, in the end, there are lots of physical things we don't actually need. We don't actually need this building. You don't need those pews. I don't need a platform. We don't need these lovely stained glass windows that are up here. I mean, people sacrifice greatly, different Sunday school classes, to put these up here. But in the end... While they may be beautiful and we may think of them as good, they are not necessary. We don't need a pulpit to make sure we have the three crosses up here. We don't need the one that hangs above the baptistry. What do we need? Spirit and truth in order to sing God's praise and hear God's Word and pray to Him and encourage one another. There's a wonderful picture. You may have seen it. It's hanging in the hallway just outside of uh, the study, my study back there. And um, it's of a group of believers in a circle uh, in, 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 the, in the midst of the Soviet Union before the Iron Curtain fell. And, and they're out in the woods. 
They're out in the woods, and they're in lots of heavy clothing because they're standing in snow. But they're out there to worship the Lord together. It is amazing what cultural trappings we think we must have in order for worship to actually occur. What we need is spirit and truth. Worship God properly. The second thing here is that we are to take the command seriously. Now, we should take every command from God seriously, right? You know, God can just say, do this, and we don't need to ask why. We don't need to ask how important it is. If God says it, we ought to obey it, right? When he gets to you shall not steal, he's not going to tell us why right next to it. He's not going to tell us how serious it is. And yet here, God goes out of his way to underline the seriousness of this command. And he gives us a couple of reasons we ought to take it seriously. First, because God is a jealous God. Because God is a jealous God. Look at verse 5. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Now today, we think of being jealous in exclusively negative terms. But here God is said to be jealous. So just like all His other attributes, this must be a holy jealousy. This must be a pure jealousy. This must be a right jealousy. In fact, what I would suggest is that when you hear jealous here, think zealous. Okay? Because God's jealousy is His zeal, His passion for His people his commitment to his people, his love for his people on display. Because because God is jealous of his people, he guards his relationship with them. He, he, He guards and values the covenant he's made with them. Nothing can be permitted to break it. So Rob Schneck wrote this, God's jealousy is not the insecure, insane, and possessive human jealousy that we often interpret the word to mean. Rather, it is an intensely caring devotion to the objects of his love, like a mother's jealous protection of her children, a father's jealous protection of his home. When something is precious to you, you protect it. I mean, it is unthinkable that a husband and wife wouldn't care at all if the other one is faithful to them. It's just unthinkable. It's also unthinkable for parents not to care whether a child is defiant or disrespectful or cuts them off or runs away or never speaks to them again. That's just unthinkable as a parent, isn't it? Just last night, we went to this event in our our neighborhood where they were showing a a movie and we were uh, eating stale popcorn and and, uh, you know, that kind of thing. So we're sitting there and we're watching and the, the younger kids are playing in the pool and our youngest son is playing uh, and he's next to a kid whose favorite game apparently is dunk all the people around you as many times as you can. So he gets dunked and I'm like, okay, yeah, he gets dunked. But then he gets dunked and he's like being held. And so just, I, I didn't even think about it. I just went, hey, 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 hey. That's all I did. That's my secret dad language. That, it's like speaking in tongues, but it needs no interpreter because you knew exactly what I meant when I said it, right? And immediately, 
They separated. Why did I do that? Because I'm jealous to protect that boy. That's my son. So even when I think he is in danger, I'm going to move, I'm going to act, I'm going to care. There are relationships where holy jealousy is right and good. We should take this commandment seriously because God is a jealous God. The second reason we should take it seriously because, is because God won't overlook our response. He's not going to overlook our response. Look at verses 5 and 6. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So God's jealousy is expressed by not overlooking how we respond to this command, whether in disobedience or obedience. But did you know, did you notice how the Lord frames it? How is disobedience framed? As hating him. How is obedience framed? as loving Him. It's another reminder that commandments are not about you got to do what you got to do no matter what you think or anything. Command, obedience to commands is a matter of love. To say that we love God and not obey His commands is not an idea that holds water in the Bible. And so he frames it this way. He says, for those who disobey, those who hate God, who make carved images, to these God says, look at, look at it right, uh, he says, visiting the iniquity of the fathers. He's going to visit. Well, that's more than showing up and checking in and seeing how we're doing. This is actually the same word that was used back when Israel was in slavery. God said he was going to visit his people. In other words, he sees and he will act. But here, instead of seeing and acting in response to their suffering, he's going to see and act in response to their sin. Not only that, the reverberating effects of their sin will last for generations to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. Now, what does that mean? What does that mean? Well, it's not some kind of automatic punishment, okay? Deuteronomy 24 makes that clear when it says, Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. So how are we supposed to make sense of this then? Well, let me ask you. If you're an adult, maybe you have children, maybe you don't, but at some point... Have you ever thought to yourself or said to yourself or said to someone else, I'm becoming my parents? You ever done that? I'm becoming my parents. We learn from our parents. We learn good habits from our parents. We learn bad habits from our parents. We can learn holy and righteous and godly things from our parents. We can learn wrong and sinful things from our parents. We can learn godly ways to respond to suffering from our parents. We can learn sinful ways to respond to suffering from our parents. So if parents create a culture in the home, listen to this, where the, where, look, the idea of God is whatever you want to think about Him. 
or where God is ignored, or where sin is tolerated, or where sin is celebrated, then you know what children will do? They'll just pick that up and they'll carry it right on. This is the way I'm going to live. Now, it doesn't mean that there can't be change because many of you would be able to testify that you became a Christian even though you didn't grow up in a Christian home. That's the beauty of grace. However, this is the pattern. We should not underestimate the power of the family. We should not underestimate the fact that God has ordained this place for the culture of the family to shape the next generation. So some will say, yes, but, but isn't it more noble to really say, I'm not, I'm, to not indoctrinate our children, you know, by dragging them to church or teaching them of God? Should, shouldn't we just let them grow up and decide for themselves? Well, a couple of things. One is that's usually the case when people of different faiths have gotten married or had children. You know, a Christian marries a non-Christian of some sort, whether they're Buddhist or atheist or whatever. We're just going to let them grow up and decide for themselves. But here's the thing. Here's the thing that's lost in that. No matter what you do, your children will grow up and decide for themselves. That's the reality. The question is, what kind of information are you going to give them to choose from? What kind of God are you going to portray? What kind of God are you going to teach? You see, the thing is, is that we can't actually avoid teaching our children, can we? We teach them both by our speaking and by our silence. We teach them by our actions and by our apathy. And what we teach, they will pick up and they will carry on. It is a powerful and dare I say, dangerous thing to be a parent. The kind of responsibility that God has entrusted to us, we should take very seriously. It is a big deal, and we would do well to remember the power that God has invested in the family every day. This is why when Deuteronomy 6 is going to go on to tell you how and when to teach your children, it's not going to say, now look, as long as, no matter what else goes off the rails in your life, so long as after dinner you get around in a circle and you sing a hymn and you read the Bible, everything's okay. Then you've done your parental job. We had family devotions today. No, 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 no. When are you to teach? When you stand up and when you sit down. And when you lie down, and when your tire blows on the interstate, and when you get fired from the job, and when the diagnosis is bad, and when the treatment's not working, and when things blow up at school, and when you have to go meet with the principal, this is when you're teaching them what it means to be a Christian. And believe you me, if the weight of the testimony about God in all the rest of life does not match the family devotions, the family devotions lose their efficacy. We ought to read the Bible with our kids. We ought to pray with our kids. We ought to do these things. But it's not a moment in the day, you see. It's all of life. Third and fourth generation. Do I want my grandchildren thinking so long as they read the Bible today, the rest of their day doesn't matter? 
No. No, a thousand times no. But then there's the flip side of those who love God and obey Him. They will be blessed by Him. And notice the blessing is more powerful than the punishment. Isn't that great? The punishment is going to go three and four generations. The, the, the blessing is for a thousand generations of those who love Him. It just goes on and on. Now, know His steadfast love and all of these things. Now, again, it's not automatic. Child, teenager, little boy, little girl, listen to me. Just because you're raised in a Christian home doesn't mean you're Christian. Just because your parents read the Bible doesn't mean that somehow it's just somehow soaked into you. This thing is, this is not automatic either. This blessing is not automatic. Every one of us could probably tell the story, if not in our own family, then in a friend's family, of a child who was taught the Bible from birth, who heard the gospel over and over and over again who's been prayed for and encouraged and has the example of godly parents, not perfect parents, my goodness, but Christian parents, parents who repent when they sin, parents who struggle to trust the Lord in the hardest times of life, parents who want to be faithful to the Lord, who want to please the Lord, and they have all of this, and we still watch them turn away. You see, the reality is, is that you and I cannot make our children righteous any more than we can make them sinners. And getting our heads around that as parents is one of the most difficult lessons. Because if you don't learn that, you will be excessively proud of yourself when your kids flourish, and you'll be excessively depressed and discouraged when they turn away. The question isn't what are they doing. The question is what are you doing to invest in them? That's the question at the end of the day. But when we do that, when we worship God properly, when it is passed on, you know what? In the same way that children pick up the mantle of ignoring God, they can pick up the mantle of faithfulness, of following the pattern of worshiping God properly, and they are blessed. Worshiping God properly is serious. Serious because God is a jealous God and serious because He will not overlook our response. But it's also serious for one more reason, for the implication of two little words in verse 4. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. Now, why? Why, why add that? Why not make for ourselves images of God? Well, first of all, God has already made images of Himself. He has made each one of us in His image. Human beings are meant to reflect and represent God. But this reflection's messed up. Because of sin, our reflection of God looks more like when you stand in front of a funhouse mirror. I mean, like, I can tell it's me, but it's messed up. You know, some of those mirrors are quite flattering, and I'd like to stand in front of them all day long. And some of them, they can just break and never be seen again. 
But that's what it is. It's a distortion of the reality. That's what sin has done to the image of God in man. It has marred the image of God. It's broken our relationship with God. But the good news is that that's not the only image. God has given another image, one that is not messed up, one that is not marred, a perfect image that God gave to restore His image in us and the image that He gave to open the way back to Him, back into relationship with God. And that image is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Colossians 1 says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Hebrews 1 says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. You see, it is only through Jesus Christ that we can worship God properly in spirit and in truth. It is only through the death of Jesus Christ that our sin can be forgiven and the way back to God opened for us. That, that curtain with the cherubim woven in is ripped apart because nothing keeps us from God anymore. Friends, do not make for yourself a carved image. Don't imagine a God that you can handle. Don't imagine a God that you'd prefer. Don't imagine what you think it means to be in relationship. That God is not real. That God cannot save you. That God is imaginary. Look to the real God. Look to the God who's revealed Himself as the real, one, true, and living God. Look to the God who has sent Jesus Christ. And look to Jesus alone to have a real relationship with God, to be forgiven, because Jesus is the way. He is the only real way. He is the only image that actually brings us to God. Do you know God this way? Not as a figment of your imagination, but as the one who has revealed himself and sent his son for you. If not, I would plead with you to turn from your sin and to trust in Jesus Christ. He is the image of God, and he's the only one we need. Let's pray. Father, we bow before you thankful, thankful for this command and thankful for the reminder that you are beyond our imagination. God, I pray that you would help us to love you and worship you properly, to avoid imagining you, to avoid having images of God in our minds. But rather, we would look to the image, to the Lord Jesus Christ, who has come and lived and died and rose again for us. Help us to love you by obeying this commandment. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Now before